with me, if you would, in your copy of the scriptures to Psalm 105. And as you're turning there, just a reminder that as we're going through the Psalms, one of our attempts as the preachers who are filling the pulpit during this time is to sort of hit Psalms with some major themes. And this Psalm you'll see is typically called like a historical psalm or a psalm of remembrance where you get a lot of recounting of what God has done at a particular point or through uh, some points of history. So with that introduction, excuse me, Psalm 105, hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servants, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain. And fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their strength. Then he brought Israel out with silver and gold. There was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. 
He opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. And he gave them the lands of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing on it. Lord, as your word has just said to seek you, we do so now and ask that you would fulfill your promise to open ears, eyes, to change hearts, and to draw people to yourself. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've probably all heard or remember some of you little ones might not have heard this phrase yet, the proof is in the pudding. You little ones have heard that yet? The proof is in the pudding. Well, in the 17th century, whenever that phrase was recorded, it was actually recorded, it's a bit longer, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And in the 17th century, puddings weren't that yummy, creamy vanilla stuff. Puddings in the 17th century were a mixture of ground meat and cereal and maybe blood, and you put that in an animal intestine and boil that or steam it, and that was pudding. And whether a pudding was good, tasted good, and whether it was safe to eat because of all that stuff that was in it, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And we've shortened that to the proof is in the pudding. And what do we mean when we say that? Well, I made a claim, and I'm going to show you that it's true. So I say that I make, well, me and Precious collectively, make the best homemade guacamole. And I challenge you, taste and see that my guacamole is good. Okay? But it's not just confined to food, right? Someone can say something like, Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. Now, no matter how much you hate that team, teams, or that guy, the defender is going to say, look at all the rings. The proof is in the pudding. More Super Bowl rings than any other quarterback, right? Well, this psalm tells us, and the scripture in general tells us, to glory in God's name, to praise his name, to seek him, to call upon him, to seek his strength. You know, we as Christians, and when we're in our lives, we are telling others, trust in God. He knows what he's doing. Well, what is the grounds for all of those assertions and those imperatives? The proof is in the pudding. That's what this psalm is, recounting God's wondrous works so that you see that you can have confidence whenever you give thanks and seek God. And so that's what I want you to see as we move through this psalm today is that the Christian's thanksgiving and confidence is based on God's perfect track record of provision and protection. The Christian's thanksgiving and confidence, the Christian can have thanksgiving and confidence because it is based on God's perfect track record of provision and protection. Now, the outline that you see, I've lifted from Richard Belcher's commentary, and it, it flows in this way. You have, in verses 1 to 6, you have this summons to praise, this machine, gov of, this machine gun of imperatives. Seek him, glory in his name, the four major categories, praise him, seek him, remember his work, make known his deeds. After that, you see there's grounds given for this summons to praise. What are the, what's the basis for this summons to praise? Well, it's God's covenant faithfulness. 
And then in the next three sections, you have Israel, uh, well, you have the patriarchs going into Canaan. Then you have their time in Canaan, or in Egypt. And then you have their time coming out to Canaan, out of Egypt. So those are the major sections that this psalm covers. So verses 1 to 6, all these imperatives, the general categories that I mentioned, I'm actually going to come back to at the end of the sermon. So we, we have all these imperatives. There's grounds given for it, but I want us to come back to the imperatives at the end. Uh, you could look at it either way. Do these things because this is true. But I'm going to handle it because this is true. Let's do these things. Okay, so just put a pin in verses 1 to 6 for a moment. But generally speaking, we are to do these things because, verses 7 to 11, God is a faithful, covenant-keeping God. He has covenant faithfulness. Verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac. I believe it's O. Palmer Robertson who defined a covenant as this, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And that gives you a little bit more detail of what covenant means. But what do we see? What is this bond in blood that God sovereignly administers, as he says, to Abraham, the covenant that he made with Abraham? He tells Abraham, you and your offspring, I will be their God, they will be my people, and I'm giving you this land as an inheritance. That is the sovereign covenant promise that God makes. And it's a bond or a promise in blood. Because what does God do after that? Abraham falls into a sleep and he sees animal halves, animals cut in half into laying in a pathway and God in a pillar of smoke passes between it. So the slaying of the animals and God passing between them is God saying, if I don't keep my promise to be your God and for you to be my people and to give you this land, may I be cut in two like these animals. That is the bond in blood, the sovereign promise that God makes to Abraham in Genesis, in Genesis 17 in particular. But it's not just to Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham and to his offspring, to the people that will follow. And actually, it's quite interesting, in Galatians 3, Paul notes the singularness of the word offspring in Genesis. Paul says in Galatians 3, you know, whenever God says, Abraham, I will be your God to you and to your offspring after you, he doesn't say offsprings, plural. He says offspring, meaning Christ. So Paul says in Galatians 3 that God is speaking not just to Abraham, but to Christ in particular and all those who are in him. Not referring to many, but to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So, God makes a promise to Abraham, to Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, who would become incarnate thousands of years later, and to all those who are, who are in him. Now, imagine if I told my wife, hey, we're going to go out to dinner for your birthday. And then the evening of dinner comes on her birthday, and, you know, dinner comes, and she's getting ready. I'm oh, you know, never mind. I'm going out to a movie with my brother. You know, words cannot express the horror that would ensue. You men know this, right? 
you keep your promise because your name is on the line and because you love the one that you made a promise to. God keeps his promise because his name is on the line and because he loves Jesus Christ and all those who are in him. Abraham and all of his true children who are us, who have faith in Jesus Christ. God is faithful to keep all of his promises because his name is on the line and because of who he promised it to. And what part of that promise is what? In verse 11, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. God made this promise to give Israel this land. Well, the church, the church of God, which is Israel, doesn't possess the nation of Israel. What happened to God's covenant promise? It's not confined to a piece of land in the Middle East. To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance has its future fulfillment, fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. And God is not going to bring us there. God is going to bring it here. That whenever the resurrection happens, that the heavens will be on earth, that God's dwelling place will be here. God is going to bring it here. And so whenever you look out there at the world and you see how screwed up it is, and when you look at your own life and you remember how screwed up it is at times, remember God's covenant promise. He will bring a glorified, resurrected, church your body your soul and a new heavens here he's promised to do it his name's on the line and he cares about the one to whom he has promised it he's been faithful to do it before and he'll do it again now we get the sort of god made these claims he's made these promises he's kept his word here's the proof The proof is in the pudding. And that's what we have in our next three sections is Canaan down to Egypt, in Egypt, and then out of Egypt. So in verses 12 to 23 really is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God calling Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees and saying, go to a land that I tell you, leave your home and your family, go to the land that I tell you, I promise to give it to you, as an inheritance. And that's what we have from verses 12 to 23 is the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob going to the promised land. Well, when they were few in number, just Abraham, Lot, and their families, when they were few in number, verse 12, he gave them protection, verse 14, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And we see this In the account of the patriarchs, in in Genesis 35, whenever Jacob is out there, the word says, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Also previously in Genesis 12, 20, and 26, in Genesis 12 and 20, you have Abraham lying to a king saying, Uh, Sarah's not my sister, or Sarah's not my wife, she's my sister. Because he's afraid, because she's so beautiful, that they're going to kill him and take his wife. 
So he lies to them in Genesis 12 and 20. And then his son Isaac does the same thing with Rebekah. Isaac's afraid. This king is going to kill me because my wife Rebekah is very beautiful and he's going to take my wife. So I'm going to lie to him and tell him she's my sister. Abraham does it. Isaac does it. And the kings go after their sister and God causes them to be rebuked. He brings... He, he visits them in a dream. He visits Abimelech in a dream and says, you're putting your hands on the wrong lady. He rebukes the kings on behalf of Abraham, even though it came about because of Abraham's fear and stupidity. He lied. He should have had faith in God's protection and said, yes, this is my wife, Sarai, or Sarah. But he doesn't. And so what I want you to remember is we Think about that account, in particular those times when Abraham and Isaac lacked confidence in God. God still protected them. God protects in spite of our sin. Now, it doesn't give an, it doesn't give an excuse for our sin, and it doesn't, shouldn't cause us to be lackadaisical. Well, I can do whatever I want because God's going to cover over me and protect me just like he did with Abraham. It's not an excuse for that, but I want you to realize that God is faithful even though we aren't. The proof is in the pudding. He did it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He rebuked kings on their, on their account. Verses 16 to 23, so 12 to 15, you've got sort of Abraham, Isaac, and some of Jacob. Uh, you've got Joseph in 16 to 23. This account when Joseph, the son of uh, Jacob, is brought down into Egypt. You see it in verse uh, 16, when he summoned a famine on the land and he broke all the supply of bread, he sent a man of ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Isn't this interesting? God's intent is for Israel to go down into Egypt and he sends a man ahead of them, Joseph. Well, how did Joseph get sent ahead of them? This was God's intent. What happened to Joseph? He's thrown into a pit by his brothers. Verse 18, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. God is sovereign over the evil actions of men and he uses them for his purpose to bring about a good and holy and just end. God sent Jacob through the actions of evil men of having him sold into slavery, put in a prison, and then finally ascending to be second to only Pharaoh alone. The other thing I want you to see is that there is a pattern here. This pattern of Joseph, isn't it the pattern of Jesus Christ? That Jesus condescends, that he is humiliated, and then after his humiliation, he is exalted. Don't we see that with Joseph? 19, until what he had said come to pass, the word of the Lord that tested him, the king sent and released him, the rule of the people set him free, and Pharaoh makes him lord of all of Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh makes him ruler over all of Pharaoh's possessions. Pharaoh gives Joseph authority to bind Pharaoh's princes at his pleasures and to teach the elders of the house of Egypt wisdom. 
Jesus Christ, Joseph was sent ahead of Israel in this way. Jesus Christ has been sent ahead of the church in this way. To be humiliated and then to be exalted and to bring his people where God intends, into a land of promise. Well, a couple of things I want you to take away from this section here is not just that there's purpose in the suffering that happens to Joseph and there's sovereignty over it, but God uses hard times to draw people to himself, not just in individual lives, but corporately. Notice and remember what happened here. God causes a famine on the land. He sent Joseph ahead to Egypt. He causes a famine to be in Egypt and in the surrounding nations so that it draws people to this one who has the word of God, Joseph. God uses the terrible hardship and famine of nations to draw people to himself. And so think about, I mean, recession, 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 hard times, gas is exorbitant. I know some of you can afford it. I know some of you might be still feeling the pain at the pump, but you know, our recession, how bad it is, whether it's here or whatever, however worse it gets, whatever aspects of famine we might experience, hard times come so that a people would be drawn to God. He uses it to turn their eyes to him. Joseph's brothers have to come to him. The other nations have to come to Joseph. You're the only one who can feed us because he stored up during the years of famine or prior to the years of famine. Pray for that as we see nations go through hard times. God is sovereignly working his purposes out. God, would you use this just like you use the famine to draw people to the one who really had the word. Use what is happening now in whatever way the difficulty and the famine is going on in the world. Use this to draw people to yourself. The other thing is not just to remember corporately, but also personally and privately, we can have confidence in God's purposes in our own suffering. He can do this with Joseph. He had a purpose in it. He can do this with Jesus. He did it with Jesus. He can do this with you. There is a perfect track record of bringing someone low and exalting them. That will happen to you perhaps multiple times throughout your life, but there is a perfect track record of a purpose and a plan in us being brought low to eventually be exalted. Even if that's the end of our days, there's a perfect track record of it. We can have confidence in God's purposes and our own suffering. That is from Canaan down into Egypt. Now, this next section, you have their time in Egypt, verses 24 to 36. While they're in Egypt, verse 24, the Lord made his people very fruitful. He made them stronger than his foes, than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. So first I want you to see here, God is the one who made his people fruitful and strong. He caused them to multiply in the land of Egypt, and then Egypt gets scared. These people are strong and numerous. God caused that. 
And then, verse 25, this is interesting. We're going to spend a moment here. He turned their hearts. That is, he turned the Egyptians' hearts. He turned the Egyptians' hearts to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. And we have to be careful how we understand God's turning of a heart and that heart being turned in the direction of sin. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that God tempts no one. He causes no one to sin, okay? So first be clear on that. God tempts no one. He causes no one to sin. But one way which we understand theologically, a way in which God turns people's heart to hardness or turns them over to sin is by removing restraint. So think of God holding a restraint upon the vileness of of a person's heart and he lets go and lets them do more of what they want that is the sense in which we can understand God's turning of a heart so you see in Romans 1 whenever God hands people over you know because they've sinned he hands them over to more sin that's not God causing them to sin but it can be understood in a sense of God removing the shackles that he, the good shackles that he has on them to be as evil as they could be and allowing them to sin more. And so in that sense, God hardens the hearts of Israel and he hardens Pharaoh's heart, as Scripture says, by letting them hate his people, by doing what they want. And he has a purpose in it. And his purpose then is seen in the description of all the plagues in verses 26 to 36. He causes Israel or Egypt to enslave Israel, to put them in hard bondage, and then he works through all of these miracles because Pharaoh won't let them go. Pharaoh's heart is hard. He hardens his own heart. God hardens his heart by removing and allowing Pharaoh to harden his own, and God causes miracles to come into the world to miraculously deliver his people. And we read through all the miracles uh, just a minute ago. Well, why don't you do remember here as we look at the miraculous portion. Think about what has preceded. What has preceded this section is God working sovereignly but through natural means, through the evil desires of Joseph's brothers, uh, through Joseph being put into a prison. Uh, he did work supernaturally in, in giving Joseph visions, but by and large, it is God's natural uh, it is natural means that God has used to bring Israel down into Egypt. Now, to bring them out of Egypt, he is working supernaturally, by and large, miraculously, through Moses. And so, remember this, as we look at what God has done, as we remember his works, God not only works sovereignly through natural means, but he works supernaturally as a means to save. So God does both in our lives, in the people's lives that you know. He works through natural circumstances of bringing people low. He works through natural, uh, sovereign, providential ordination of events to bring people to himself like famine in the land. But he also works supernaturally. He changes the heart that doesn't want to be changed. He causes that heart to come alive, to supernaturally resurrect it. And so the God who can change hearts, the God who can remove restraint and allow people to hate his people, the God who can add restraint, the God who can actually take out the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh, 
This is the God that we can pray to. This is the God we can pray to to change hearts. Ours and others. Ours and others. His hardening has a purpose. His softening has a purpose. And not just initially, you know. God, we thank God for changing, for us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for changing me, for softening my heart, for resurrecting me. God, you work supernaturally in Israel. You work supernaturally once in my life already. Continue to work supernaturally. Continue to clean me up by your Holy Spirit. Change me. We can ask, and we know that we'll receive what we ask for because the proof is in the pudding. He's done it already. He'll do it again. He does it again and again. Because what? Because our real issue isn't slavery in Egypt. It's not physical bondage, is it? Our real issue is bondage and slavery to sin. That's what the Exodus is a picture of. Sure, God miraculously brought Israel out of Egypt, but that is an example, that is a picture of the real, the better Exodus. And here again, you have the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The better Exodus that we need is not physical freedom, it is freedom from slavery and death through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we need is the new, the better exodus of which this exodus is simply a picture. Israel is brought out of Egypt. They are delivered. And then from 37 to 45, you have Egypt as the uh, synopsis of a few events that happen as Egypt wanders from Egypt into Canaan. Over the course of 40 years, they've, they've come out of Egypt by miraculous deliverance. God has parted the Red Sea. They've gone through. And now for 40 years, they will wander and be brought into the land of Canaan. I think it was the previous seminary professor of mine, my, uh, Michael Morales. If it's not him or he was quoting somebody else, I don't remember. God's people are always a wilderness people. You here right now are a wilderness people. The land of Canaan, that promised inheritance that we're headed toward, is the new heavens and new earth. And until we get there, we are a wilderness people. And so what happened whenever God's people were physically in the wilderness? God provided them shelter and guidance. Verse 39, he spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. So, in the heat of the desert, if you notice how red my head is, I got sunburned like two days ago, standing out doing physical training with the army, and I got sunburned. So, and the NCO who was in charge was like, good sir, I'm glad you got sunburned. Suck it up and drive on. So, <laughs> um, the heat of the sun, you can really feel here in Colorado. So much less atmosphere to break up the sun's rays. You get burned so quickly. It's nice and dry, but man, it's like roasting in an oven. God provides a cloud over his people that they travel under so that they are not burned by the desert sun. At night, whenever it's dark and you can't see anything in the desert, we're so used to living 
in or near towns, we have so much ambient light, and we have headlights, we have street lights, uh, we can see at night. The desert is dark. There ain't nothing. And so God provides a pillar of fire. So he shelters them, he guides them at night. What else does he do? He gives them food, verse 40. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. So this is the quail that he delivered, this is the manna that he delivered, and he gives them water. Verse 41, he opened the rock, the water gushed out, it flowed through the desert like a river. There's very little water in the desert, right? So what does God have to do? To keep his people alive, he supernaturally causes water to spring from a rock to provide water, food, shelter, and guidance. Doesn't everybody in here have every one of those things? Food, water, shelter, and guidance. God has provided for you in this wilderness. He's done it before. He's doing it now. He'll do it again. Well, the other thing I want you to remember as we read through this and we think about Israel in the wilderness, God allows a lack to exist. God allows a need that you cannot meet so that you call out to him so he meets the need. Israel needed, Israel didn't have a bunch of tents. Israel didn't have a, a, a bunch of fire to light up the night sky. Israel ran out of food. It's 40 years. I mean, remember, Scripture also records he caused the soles of their sandals to not wear out. He supernaturally maintained their sneakers so that they could walk for 40 years. They didn't have water, so, he, so they have to ask for water. Notice, they asked, he brought quail, because they were hungry. God allows a need that his people can't meet, so they call out to him, so he meets the need. Think of not just Israel, but think about the needs that you might have. God has allowed that need. And it's a need that you cannot meet in your own strength, in your own gumption. But God has done it so you would call out to him so he would meet the need. Now we know that doesn't happen immediately, right? And we know that we have our own sinful responses mixed in. We know from further, you know, accounts of this time in Israel's wandering that, you know, they sin greedily, you know, in their request for the quail, actually. But the principle still remains. God will answer in his time to meet the need that you have that you cannot meet. The proof is in the pudding. He's done it before. He's done it continually in your life. You can remember those circumstances that he has, and he'll do it again. Well, as we've come to the end, so to speak, of this psalm, we revert Back to the beginning, what I said we were going to do in the first place. The concluding applications from verses 1 to 6 that were the initial demands. Because of all of this that God has done, remember his works. Remember what he has done in Israel, in your life. 
praise him, render him praise because of what he's done in keeping his covenant promise. He's going to give us the real and full and better exodus out of Egypt, out of sin, that ends with the new heavens and new earth. Seek him. That's one of the imperatives of the first section. Seek him. You know you have that friend. There's two types of friends that you have. Then they're on a spectrum. <laughs> you have that one friend that you ask to do something or ask them to meet or ask them to help you, and they're pretty flaky. Like, they're not going to show up. They're going to call you at last minute and cancel. We have those people in our lives. Bless their heart. You have another type of friend, hopefully, Lord willing, you have another type of friend, that one who is really reliable. When you ask them something, they're going to show up. They're going to show up 10 minutes early, and they're going to stay there as long as they need to to help you out with whatever it is. You want that person to be the one to help you because you know they're reliable. They have a track record of helping you again, and again, and again, and being where they will be, being where they say they will be when they say they're going to be there. That's why, this is why we can seek God, the perfect track record of being right where his people need them when he needs, uh, when they need him. Make known his deeds. If this is who God is and what he's done in Israel's history, if we really believe it, this should flow in us and spill out over us onto the people around us. Uh, there's, I call it the greatest movie never seen to end all wars. Steve Johnson and I talked about it this week. You have to see this movie. You have to. I'll take that with a caveat. It's rated R. It's a POW movie, so be careful. All right? But this is a great movie. You have to see it. Zapata's Taco Shop. Where's Craig O'Dell? We, we saw each other at Zapata's Taco Shop this week. These tacos are awesome. You have to go there. We say those things about, you know, movies and food and things that we really love. If this is who God is, you have to know him. This is what you have to tell people around you. This is who God is. This is what he's done. And not just in redemptive history with Israel. This is what he's doing in redemptive history with me. Do you remember that you, your life, is a part of redemptive history? It's not recorded in scripture like this, but what is happening are the deeds of God in your life. That is redemptive history that needs to be recounted to other people who can hear, this is how God has worked in my life. You have to trust and know this guy, this God, who provides salvation in Jesus Christ by simple faith in him. He forgives our sins and gives us righteousness. Well, we have a lot of excitement whenever we see our loved one come home, don't we? I mean, whether you're, whether you're uh, in the military or have been in the military or not, your loved one has been apart from you for a while, whether it's weeks or months. And when they come home, oh, that feeling of joy and relief and thanksgiving that you feel when your loved one, when your mother, father, husband, wife comes home. Well, 
did you know that this is not the only place in Scripture that this psalm appears? It happened whenever God came home, so to speak, whenever the Ark of the Covenant was being brought to Jerusalem. David tells his people, then on that day, this is First Chronicles 16, the Ark is coming to Jerusalem, then on that day, on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. And then you have Psalm 105, 1 to 15, verbatim, there in 1 Chronicles 16. Whenever God, in, in his special manifestation of his presence at the Ark of the Covenant, came home to Jerusalem. That feeling when your loved one comes home. God has come home to you. And he's not just come home to you, he has come home in you. The letter to the Corinthians tells us that God has made his dwelling place. God's dwelling place is not in Jerusalem in particular anymore. God's dwelling place is in the temple of his people. Do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit wherein God dwells? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. God has come home in you. In Revelations 21, we hear John in Revelation echo what God has promised to Abraham. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. In Revelation, John is echoing the promise to Abraham. God will dwell with them. He will be their God. They will be his people. How do we know? The proof is in the pudding. It's happened again and again and again. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our covenant-keeping, faithful, protecting, providing God. How else can we express ourselves but how the psalm opens and how it closes? Sing, give thanks, glory in him, seek him, and as the psalm closes, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our God, we do praise and thank you for your wondrous works, your magnificent deeds that are recounted here in this psalm. We do pray that you would change our hearts through this, that you would enable us to render you praise, to remember your deeds, that you work in our lives, not just in church's history, in, but in our own personal history. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.